This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Payne, editor and contributor to the 2021 Shambhala publication, Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition. This collection of essays explores how secular values impact Buddhism in the modern world, what versions of Buddhism are actually being transmitted to the West, whether it is possible to know if a given interpretation of the Buddha's words is correct, and whether secular Buddhism is purely a Western invention. Contributors to this volume include Bhikkhu Bodhi, Kate Crosby, Gil Franz Dahl, Kathleen Gregory, Funi Tsu, Roger R. Jackson, Charles B. Jones, David L. McMahon, Richard K. Payne, Ron Purser, Sarah Shaw, Philippe Turin, and Pamela D. Winfield. Richard Payne is the Yehan Numata Professor of Japanese Buddhist Studies at the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, California. During his dissertation research into Tantric Fire Ritual, Homa, on Mount Koya in Japan, he also completed training as a Shingon priest, or a Jari. Clustering around his core research program on Tantric Ritual are broader theoretical concerns about the conduct of such research. This includes the study of ritual across cultural boundaries and over long durations, and the use of language in Tantric Buddhist ritual. He also serves as editor-in-chief of the Institute's annual journal, Pacific World, and is the chair of the editorial committee of the Pure Land Buddhist Studies series. His other publications include Pure Lands in Asian Texts and Contexts, an anthology co-edited with Yorgios Halkias, in 2019, Language in the Buddhist Tantra of Japan, Indic Roots of Mantra, 2018, and Homa Variations, The Study of Ritual Across the Long Dore, co-edited by Michael Witzel, 2016. Richard Payne, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much for having me here this morning. Well, it's great to have you, and uh, uh, we look forward to this um, discussion uh, about uh, secularizing Buddhism. But uh, I'd like to begin, as we do with all first-time uh, guests on the uh, podcast, to ask you to uh, let your mind go back to childhood and youth. And um, in that reflection, ask if there are any unusual experiences, any uh, um, moments when how your life would be would develop, how your career would develop to lead you to edit this book, Secularizing Buddhism, um, came to be? Were, were there any formative experiences um, or, or experiences of, of like um, that you could point to? And please then... Uh, Tell us about them. Okay, good. I 
grew up in a um, very secular, Marxist-informed family. Um, not just secular, but anti-clerical. Mm-hmm. My father had been a volunteer in the Spanish Civil War um, and had a fair amount of um, strongly held negative views towards uh, certainly the Spanish Catholic Church uh, as a consequence. Um, Further back, the family were Quakers, so there was that kind of um, orientation away from uh, formal um, church services. Uh, and eventually my parents found their way to the Unitarian Fellowship in, in here in Los Gatos. Um, and that seemed very amenable to them um, and provided a, a community at the time that in their lives when they when they needed it, when they you know when benefited from having a broader community um, close by. Before we moved to Los Gatos, I would our nearest neighbors were um, Japanese Americans. Uh, and my mother had worked in the relocation agency that helped to bring Japanese American families back from the uh, concentration camps and, and find places for them to live and assist them to try to reclaim property and so on. So I grew up with an awareness of that um, deep social injustice, but also exposure to the Japanese American community. Um, went to Obon festivals in August and ate teriyaki chicken and watched the Obon dances and went to temples and looked at uh, bonsai shows and generally grew up with a very positive feeling about Japanese Buddhism uh, and the Japanese American community. So those were uh, certainly formative in later later years, um, not too long thereafter, actually. Um, the Tibetan exodus uh, arrived in California, and um, I learned about it, about uh, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, probably most dramatically from... Um, Houston Smith's uh, very um, historically constrained, let's say, um, as well as ideologically constrained, um, Requiem for Faith, uh, the movie that he helped to, to produce. But what I was struck by in watching that movie uh, was Tibetan art, uh, Tibetan Buddhist art. Mm. And knowing a little bit at the time about Jungian um, ideals, about the nature of the psyche, the imagery of wrathful deities just struck me as being a very uh, important part of what made, in my perception at that time, what made Tibetan Buddhism distinct from uh, Japanese Buddhism. Um, that was at a time when the only art of Japanese Buddhism that I was familiar with was the Zen tradition. It's very um, clear and pristine and uh, unelaborate um, kind of aesthetic. 
and seeing you know wrathful deities and knowing about the the shadow and so on it just seemed to me that the uh, tibetan tradition had an access to something that was very important uh, and as a consequence then i studied with uh, tarjong tilko rupache in berkeley for um several years um, and then from there wound up being married and having a child to think about and going to uh, Nepal or Tibet or somewhere uh, as part of my doctoral dissertation work just didn't seem quite so feasible. Um, and by that point, I had come to understand more about the history of the Japanese Buddhist esoteric tradition, the Shingon tradition, mm-hmm. and made contact with people um, particularly one teacher in Sacramento at the time who introduced me to people in Japan and wound up pursuing Japanese esoteric Buddhism, uh, which I saw as kind of the perfect combination of um, esoteric Buddhism in Tibet and the Japanese uh, religious culture and and culture generally. Um, So that was what I pursued um, for research purposes, specifically the, the Homa, uh, the fire ceremony. Um, the teacher in Sacramento had invited me to attend the uh, New Year's ceremony that they hold every year, uh, which is uh, very, very dramatic. Uh, as you arrive well before sunrise uh, and the priest builds a fire on the altar um, and the Sangha are chanting the Heart Sutra uh, to the rhythm of a taiko drum. Um, so there's a lot of the kind of sonic driving, as well as the, the drama of the flames at the front of the altar, uh, at the front of the temple, which is darkened, um, leaping up and, and uh, lighting up the, the room. Um, and that really set me on working on that particular ritual. Um, kind of like always been fascinated by fire um, since a childhood. Um, and that seemed like, the, again, the perfect thing to pursue within the context of Japanese esoteric Buddhism. Hmm. Well, thank you. So um, uh, uh, I wonder if you would consider yourself a practitioner, a Shingon practitioner, or um, or is your um, engagement with it uh, more uh, academic or 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 both? Um, all of the above, I guess, is the the okay. proper answer. Okay, uh, I am uh, an ordained Shingon priest, um, ah. so I uh, went through the full training um, and um, at the same time it was always clear to my teacher in Japan uh, that my interest was academic um, so you know it was I was pursuing the topic uh, for my dissertation research and also out of personal interest and desire um, you know, Today, my practice is basically a kind of um, loosely 
Zen, Dzogchen, Shingon, um, objectless meditation. Um, probably looks an awful lot like uh, Vipassana, um, but my tendency is to see that there's a great deal of continuity between these traditions. Um, mm-hmm. To to be an active Shingon practitioner requires a rather elaborate and large altar um, and space to do that. Um, and that's not not been really feasible. Got it. Thank, thank you. Oh, the, 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 this is very helpful. And, um, and uh, interesting because we know we have a, uh, a friend in Croatia who also has uh, Shingon uh, training and... Uh, right. Uh, the, his name's Hokai Diego Sobel, and uh, we've had him on the show a couple times. He's the only, uh, uh, until talking to you, the only uh, Shingon, you know, practitioner and, and uh, in his case, teacher that uh, we've run across. So it's interesting that your practice in an esoteric, almost tantric form of Japanese Buddhism would, um, that, that, in many ways helps explain or sort of helps locate the perspective you're coming from in uh, the book, Secularizing Buddhism. And I, I think that you can remove the qualifier almost. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> One of the uh, issues that has long been difficult is to convey to people that there is a tantric tradition in East Asia um, and that it has as much of a contribution to the history of Buddhism in East Asia as Tantric Buddhism has to Central Asian Buddhism. Yeah. Um, and there's a popular mistake, you know, in you know, the popular literature and the journalistic approaches that say, you know, Tibetan Buddhism is Tantric and, you know, and Tantric Buddhism is Tibetan. Um, makes that dual identification. And um, both of those statements are of only limited truth value yeah and okay i'm sorry go ahead no continue. i was just going to continue to ramble on <laughs> no, that's okay it's a, it's a great that's, talk. that's that that's how conversations work Indeed. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, we, we do want to turn attention to the book secularizing buddhism and and i want to begin uh, that discussion by asking you what was the instigation um in your own uh, mind and heart uh, to um, edit and uh, generate this book, invite people, etc. Um, several years ago, I had written some rather opinionated blog posts, um, and as a consequence, one of the editors at uh, Shambhala who. Um, I'd had contact with on working on the Oxford Encyclopedia of Buddhism. Um, she contributed uh, an entry for that. Um, and actually, the idea for the project was hers. Um, okay. Um, when we met at a conference, um, you know, we said, oh, you're you know, that person. Um, and the conversation developed from there and um, she thought that it would be a good topic and she thought that given the 
nature of some of my um, informal writings previously uh, that I might be an appropriate person to undertake it. Um, this actually, I found the um, working with her to be very, very productive. She was helped to balance my sometimes one-sided, not sometimes, my often one-sided <laughs> opinions um, with greater depth and um, a different perspective. Um, so in, out of that conversation, um, I became convinced that, yeah, there was a worthwhile project there that could be undertaken. And, you know, we worked forward you know, with names of possible contributors and themes and how to develop it. And really um, required a, about a five-year research project uh, for me mm -hmm. uh, to improve my understanding and focus my um, attention on how to uh, represent what I wanted to say about what was going on. Um, you know, as I think I make, hopefully I make clear enough, this is not intended as a definitive statement, but rather kind of a snapshot uh, of what's going on actually now, what was going on um, with Buddhism in America and the West uh, at the time. Uh, I'm sure that there will be, you know, further complexities and you know, knowing how the sociology of, of um, knowledge works, uh, probably unintentionally, this work will have uh, effects on how the secularized forms of Buddhism continue to develop. It was not intended as an advocacy book, um, but rather as a, um, uh, from my part, a way of helping people to look at a very, very complex phenomenon and to understand how it's developing and the ways in which it's developing and some of its um, dimensions um, so that they can be better informed uh, as they move forward with their own ideas. Yeah, you mentioned um, in, uh, I think, your contribution to the collection that that both your essay and I take this as the book as a whole is more about looking at the finger that's pointing at the moon rather than uh, uh, focusing attention on the, on the moon itself. And that, yes, I, I, I actually want to trademark that, uh, I, I, that. I think it's a good one. So. Yeah. And, and for listeners who aren't as familiar with that in the Buddhist tradition, the idea is that many traditions are, pointers to the moon and the moon is what we, we should be focused on. But what I found interesting in your material, both, both in your editorship and in your uh, own contribution, you make a good case for why it's actually very important to look at the finger too, because um, uh, the, the construction of the spiritual injunctions actually have implications on the scope of what one can practice and experience. I think that this is um, really important more widely in society. Um, I mean, you think about how um, many people have been conned into believing certain things about uh, our political, recent political history. Right. Um, and, you know, it's 
they're looking at the object that people are trying to direct their attention at rather than critically reflecting on why is this person saying these things um, and what's the framework within which they're um, taking advantage of particular ways of framing the discourse. Um, yeah, so, they, I'm sorry, go ahead. So looking at the finger is really important. Uh, you asked about my personal experiences. I started teaching um, Introduction to Logic, and that was the first classes I ever taught. Um, and critical thinking and symbolic logic beyond that. So the, the desire to help people think clearly uh, has been part of my um, experience for you know, decades and decades. Thank you. Well, one of the one of the things I appreciate about appreciate about um, the book is that uh, there's a lot of framing, and different people have different framings, of mm -hmm. course, different contributors have different framings of the historical context for the arising of the project of secularizing Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And um, I was particular. I, I really resonated with Bhikkhu Bodhi's. Um, framing in, in terms of sort of the sociology of the 60s, 70s, et cetera, um, in, in North America. And I'm wondering if you, um, to what extent is that historical context um, of interest, of particular interest to you personally? Because I think, I think it does help, it certainly helped me um, grasp some things or contextualize um, comments that we've had on the show with with uh, you know many previous guests about how how things moved in the direction that your book points to mm -hmm. um well you ask if it's of personal interest i mean i it, that's my personal history um and Part of what has been involved in that is coming to realize how influential um, neo-romantic notions were in the 60s mm. and 70s. Um, so in addition to studying Buddhism, one of the things that I um, wound up teaching for um, several, several instances um, was religion in America. And, you know, I, when students come to me who are interested in Western Buddhism, um, I really insist that they become more familiar with the history of religion in the United States, because that's the context within which these things are happening. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of ways of thinking about uh, personal existence and the relationship between people in society and the relationship to the environment um, and the planet um, were deeply influenced in the 60s and 70s by that neo-romantic uh, project. Um, so actually understanding um, things like the transcendentalists and like the romantics in Europe and like German idealism that is very, very valuable, I think, in placing 
um, a context, a framework uh, for seeing where many of these ideas come from. And the critical part is to recognize first that there is a way in which those ideas are uh, the first kind of level of analysis that, that I personally engaged in was, oh, these ideas are actually coming out of Western religious culture. And they're being dressed in Buddhist robes mm-hmm. and being presented as Buddhism. And certainly, as, uh, I think that a fair amount of that happens. The next step of analysis, though, that I think is important is um, keyed to the to the term overdetermined, um, which we've borrowed from Freudian theory, uh, which says that anything has multiple determinations, right? There's in Freudian context, is speaking specifically of dream analysis. Um, but I think that that applies importantly here as well, because these connections, these representations of Buddhism are not simply being made up out of whole cloth. It's not simply a matter that some idea is um, being attributed to Buddhism but rather that similarities are being identified. And what is similar is therefore often taken as, oh, that must be what's true. That must be what's important. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So it's overdetermined because, yes, indeed, there are things in the Buddhist tradition that do match. Right? So these representations of Buddhism are overdetermined by the, by the similarity. But the similarity itself needs to be questioned because that similarity may not be the most important thing in the Buddhist tradition itself. Things are being selected out of the tradition because they look familiar, because they look similar to what we already know. Um, So that process of selection is something that I think um, needs to be attended to because it's more complex than simply rejecting secularized representations of Buddhism, but rather recognizing that there is something there that's being picked up, but realizing that that's being picked up because it's important for us in our culture here now today. So this is um, helps understand why you choose the title and you write about this in uh, both your introduction and, and your own uh, contribution, you use the term secularizing as opposed to secular Buddhism, because what I understand you to be saying is that you're describing a process that as opposed to a thing. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you're actually fairly clear. And I'd, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how, even the articulation of a construct like secular Buddhism in and of itself reifies a certain something and at the same time reifies uh, its opposite, which I guess in this case would be religious Buddhism. Right. And, and so you, you, you describe how, I think you use the term semiotic pairs, how, how these um, constructs begin to become reified in the conversation without people recognizing that this is a actually more of a process than it is a, uh, a state. So maybe could you elaborate on that? Because I, I think that that's 
follows from what you were just saying here. Yes, the um, the notion of secular Buddhism or the label is a constructed concept and as such it is very very malleable um, but it is constructed out of opposition then to what it isn't uh, and which is identified by the secular Buddhists as as that opposite um, and whether it's called traditional Buddhism or any number of other possible names, religious Buddhism being one of them. Um, but the, the two concepts are constructed together. Um, and part of what happens, I believe, is that the fact that those are oppositional constructed mm-hmm. concepts is, is obscured for a variety of reasons, um, some of which may have to do with the um, attempting to claim authority or power or something like that, um, so that there is a handy oppositional object against which one can define one's own position. Um, you mentioned Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, contribution. I was uh, speaking with a, a group of Buddhist teachers on Friday, and one of them asked, well, I wonder what percentage of you know, contemporary American Buddhist teachers are secular, as Bodhi defines, and how many are traditionalists, and how many are eminent teachers. And That is a sociological question, and the framing of the categories would tend to reify the categories, would tend to make them real. Um, And then if you ask people that question and you describe what those three categories are, and they're forced to choose where they're located out of these three possibilities, then that forms their identity. Um, this was something that when I was working for the New Religious Movements Project uh, at the Graduate Theological Union some four decades ago now, uh, one of the authors of the uh, collection that uh, eventually was uh, produced by that, that project pointed out that he had been at a, uh, a kind of um, welcoming dinner that was being hosted by a new religious movement that he was interested in. And there was a, a newcomer there who was curious and interested. And the scholar held back from questioning that person because he knew that that would interfere with and cause changes to occur that um, may not be for the best for that individual. Mm-hmm. So, by asking people, where do you fit, you limit their possibilities of how they understand themselves. Um, and out that, that schema that is presented there as either traditionalist or secularist or imminent is itself an artifice. 
these are not actual people. Right. 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 Concepts that are being constructed in relationship to one another. So, you know, hur- heuristically, they may have some value. Right? Um, well, but we can't get into reifying these as distinct forms of Buddhism in the West today. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to Bhikkhu Bodhi, he does emphasize that um, that these are these are uh, uh, points along a spectrum, yes. as it were, and and that um, you know he he's careful to be clear about that. Um, but but your your general point about groups in particular identifying creating identities around opposition uh we i am not that uh-huh. and vice versa is it, it certainly is is not limited to uh, religious identity uh, no. i'm thinking of a, a book that's about to be published um by the anthropologist david graber now deceased unfortunately and uh uh, David Wengrow, uh, called the dawn of Hum- the dawn of everything, I think. But um, but the argument, uh, or one one part of the argument that they're making, is to reference the construction of a, of a social identity of Native North Americans in Northern California versus Northwest um, North America, and. The um, the former in Northern California um, had a particular identity that um, rejected hierarchy and slavery in a certain in certain for- formulas or formations, and the Northwest groups had just the opposite and defined each other in relation to that to those ideals. So so this is a, a, hom- a it's it's a common human phenomenon about identity formation surely. And it's really interesting that, um, I mean, I, I, Bhikkhu Bodhi is the only one who, who created this imminent. Yeah, we uh, should explain that, that a little bit. Because, go ahead. Well, or, I, or, or may, we should ask our guest, of course, to do Yeah, that. I mean, do you feel comfortable, you know, just uh, framing uh, this continuum of uh, Pake, of uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, of uh, traditional, uh, imminent, and secular? Uh, no, please go ahead. Okay, I mean, I'll tell you my understanding. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm basing this off of what he said in the book, and uh, my sim- my very simplistic gloss on it would be that uh, in ter- in categories that people tend to understand in the West, you, you know, there's the traditional sort of religious, secular might be atheistic, and or materialistic, and eminent is agnostic, and so. You know the the trope of an eminent practitioner, as the, as Bhikkhu Bodhi explains it, is represented by folks like Gil Franz Dahl. But I think uh, Roger Jackson actually sort of affected this as well in his essay that uh, I don't know what's true, <laughs> so I'll practice these things and I may even act as if, but I don't have to make a uh, um, you know, ontological commitment as to the nature of reality. Whereas uh, a secularist would say, kind of, I know it's true and I know it's important and this is what's important and this is this is the only part of this canon that's actually meaningful. 
I suppose a traditionalist would say everything that I have received is important and I need to meet it at face value and not impose my own selective criteria on what's important. Yeah, I I think that it's um, important to remember that these are proposed categories and descriptions. And um, I think if you look at uh, Fransdahl's own essay, uh, you'll find something much more complex there, uh, as well as what Roger's doing in in his treatment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in many ways, yes, an agnostic response to doctrine um, either Buddhist doctrine or um, secularist doctrine um, is an alternative. And it moves, I think one of the things that's very interesting about that is that it's not a simple agnosticism, mm-hmm. but it's an attempt to move out of the oppositional relationship to uh, one can also see this as kind of a Hegelian dialectic uh, operation that this third possibility is not simply an an adequate one which I got the sense that there was a kind of um, that evaluation underlay some of what Bhikkhu Bodhi was saying that uh, neither the secular nor the imminent is an adequate form of Buddhism. Um, but that instead one can see this as, well, yes, there's a, there are traditional forms of Buddhism, there's secular forms of Buddhism. Um, the secular has created in its own way itself and the other out of this opposition. But that some third thing is emerging. Uh, and that that may actually, that resolution uh, may actually be more productive and more fruitful than either of the two that from which uh, the dialectic started. Hmm. That makes sense to me. Uh, I mean, I think that's way, that, that is what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi want, wanted to make of it. I'm not sure I was entirely convinced, but, I, but, um, but it, it's a creditable attempt, it seems to me. And... Um, but I don't want to focus just on uh, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi. So, uh, and his and his contribution. I don't know if you have a a place where you want to go, Stuart. And yes, yeah. well, I do. Want, there's there's another distinction that uh, that you uh, raise uh, in your in your contribution that I wanted to at least uh, tease out here, and and that's the distinction between. Um, uh, secularizing Buddhism as a process and Buddhist modernism as a uh, uh, state of affairs. And maybe you could speak a little bit about that distinction because I got from you that Buddhist modernism isn't necessarily the same as the impetus for secularizing Buddhism. And I'd like to understand that a little bit better because that's, that's a, something of a subtle and a little surprising point. Um, in the way that I was using the terms, Buddhist modernism is an ideology, and 
secular Buddhism is a movement. Um, there's nobody, although people have, have used the term, but I will just, um, as a rough generalization, say that nobody is claiming to be a modern Buddhist. Right? Actually, that's less than totally true, but um, it doesn't have the same kind of status as people saying, I'm a secular Buddhist, and I'm affiliated with this group of secular Buddhists, and you know, we meet on a regular basis online, and there's this other association over here. So if we don't, if, if we admit that there's more complexity than saying, you know, yes, there are people who use the term modern to describe their own um, form of Buddhism. Um, it has a different status as Buddhist modernism as an ideology and secular Buddhism and even some of these modern Buddhists uh, as movements attempting to form institutions, uh, establish hierarchies of authority, uh, establish um, agreed upon um, canons uh, of reference. Um, those are very different projects that people are undertaking as part of the secularizing development um, as a movement in contrast to Buddhist modernism, which is a descriptive term about, as I use it and as I've learned to use it from David McMahon, um, a descriptive term about commonly held ideas and views um, that have informed the development and the history of Buddhism in the late 19th through the 20th and into the 21st centuries. So is it the case that um, in some cases what constitutes uh, Buddhist modernism wouldn't necessarily have arisen as a result of a process of secularization as much as in some cases, for instance, a reaction to colonial presence in Southeast Asia. As if I think about like Kate Jackson or Kate Crosby's work, um, uh, and we we recently had her on a, on the show about uh, the book Esoteric Theravada, right. and there was quite a provocative section in that book describing how some of the modernist forms of Theravada came about by eschewing more traditional forms of practice and in some ways doing the same kind of selectivity about what some of the elite practitioners in um, uh, Thailand, for instance, felt were important. And those things that were important tended to accord to some of the influences that the colonial pressures that Thailand was under between the, the British and the French thought were important. Yeah, one of the things that informs my view is to having looked at movements that are reasonably called Buddhist modern, um, parts of Buddhist modernism, um, and which share some characteristics with secular Buddhism, but which secular Buddhists would reject as, from their perspective, traditional. <laughs> Um, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, the group Shinyuan in Japan, um, who, you know, just 
to be clear, I've had a, a very good relationship with them. Uh, found them very supportive, very interesting. Um, and they are led by a woman. Um, they have both male and female priests. Um, they have a very modern way of going about things. Um, very oriented towards many of the same values as some of the secular Buddhists express um, about the value of the individual, relationship to the environment, things like that. Um, and yet their practices are ones that probably most secular Buddhists would describe as um, traditional Buddhism and as superstition. Um, so these are not simple and clear-cut categories. Uh, and there are a number of other groups in East Asia which have uh, been influenced by and developed in the context of Buddhist modernism as a set of concepts, um, particularly with the idea of lay leadership, but which would not fit with the kinds of preconceptions that secular Buddhists would bring to, the, to their evaluation of that group. Uh, so these are not, as I say, these are not clear-cut categories, um, and that's why, I, for, for me, it makes more sense to think about Buddhist modernism as, as a way of thinking about things, as an ideology, and distinguish that from secular Buddhism as a movement or any of these other movements that we can look at in the history of modern history of Buddhism. Well, just as an aside... Um... You, you, your own self-description about your Buddhist practice um, itself has a what I would call a modernistic uh, flavor that is anything but secular. Which is to say, to even be able to say that uh, you know my practice is Zen, Dzogchen, Shingong. That's that's a modern uh, conceit because in the modern world we have access to all of these different practices simultaneously, whereas in a quote-unquote traditional or uh, earlier in time, that would just not be feasible. And yet that doesn't entail secularism in any way, shape, or form. Right. So, uh, um, One of the things that I think is really valuable in looking at uh, the history of Buddhism is that, again, the, these characterizations of what was traditional um, need to be made more complex. Um, there are periods, for example, I mean, my area of specialization is Japanese Buddhism. So that's the, the examples that I most easily reference. Um, in the modern period, yes, there are very strict um, divisions between sectarian identities. Um, but before that period, there was a lot of cross-fertilization. Mm. Um, someone who was, uh, you know, ordained in one tradition could easily wind up studying in some other tradition uh, and then go and do some third form. Uh, so a Tendai priest may have also studied Chingon and also studied Zen uh, and wound up being a Pure Land uh, figure, for example. Um, so the kind of um, rigidity of identity is uh, 
part of what is being projected back onto traditional forms. Interesting. So this That's notion that somehow the modern is uh, exceptional in this way um, tends to distance us from the realities of that history. That's true, for example, in Tibet in with the Rime movement. Um, many of those figures studied with multiple traditions um, and integrated them in different ways. Um, part of the history of the Dalai Lama is a, a interaction with uh, between Gelug and Yungma, um, both positive in the sense of trying to maintain relationships and also negative in the sense of assertions of Gelug authority uh, over the tradition. So the actual history is, is really, really complex. Um, and when we look at specific individuals, we can see that there was a lot of freedom. Um, I believe that that, uh, again, that distancing of ourselves as the, in the modern and as having this kind of unique characteristic, um, I think undermines some of uh, the sense of continuity that we ought to have uh, with things, which is not to say that there aren't significant shifts that happen. Um, and for myself, I think that the biggest one, um, which happen to be working on right now, has to do with the way in which um, economics has affected Buddhism that the rise of capitalism as a distinct form of exchange um, has a transitional effect on not just Buddhism, but everything. Um, and so on the one hand, I'm interested in, in trying to blur the distinctions between our own present status uh, and that of Buddhists in the past um, and to see the connections and continuities and at the same time recognize that there are things that have happened that have changed the nature of human existence in the world. Um, the whole capitalist, industrialist, urbanist um, revolution of the late 19th century is, I think, really a transformation that we're still experiencing um, and which we don't know the outcome of as yet. Is that what you're referring to when you use the word transition or transitional? Uh, where did I use it? Just a, few, just a few, just a moment ago, um, in, um, and yeah. you said you, you said that the effects of capitalism, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, mm-hmm. um, are tra- are transitional. I I, I got I, I wasn't sure what you were what you were referring to there. Yeah, yeah. Um, to put it. Um, in a phrase that I read recently in the books, things change and they don't change back. Uh, <laughs> so it's a phase change. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so um, did you want to add? Well, I just wanted to uh, uh, just mention very uh, just to this point. One of the interesting things you you bring across in the book and particularly in your essay is the um, that it's these most radical changes of the modern capitalist world that we're probably least able to recognize or pick out from a modern point of view because it's sort of like the air we breathe and so we just or the water we swim in we don't see it 
And so it's much more convenient, just like I was doing a moment ago, to project onto the past reified categories of separation that maybe did not operate in the way that it's convenient for me to project. Yet the real categories that are important to look at are ones that I just don't even see because it's uh, so part of everything that we take for granted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's part of what makes this um, work, I think, valuable. Um, the self-reflective uh, project, uh, not just what I and the other contributors have done here, but as a way of um, deepening one's, um, oh, how can I say this? As long as one is not paying attention to what is taken for granted, one is at the effect of that. Um, And that, I believe, is the difficult work of um, psychotherapy, um, of critical analysis of society, um, of critical reflection on uh, contemporary religious beliefs. Um, It's what we don't see that makes it that makes us do what we do, you know, in a sense, it's what's Mm -hmm. taken for granted. Um, And so asking people to do the hard work of reflecting on what it is that they take for granted and how does that affect their lives, um, which is not always a welcome question. So um, you bring up psychotherapy um, and one of the, one of the, Views that I've often heard expressed by by Buddhist friends is our, our views on the I don't know if integration is the right word, but the mutual interpenetration of Western Buddhism and psych, psychology, Western Western psychology specifically, and that certainly arises in this book. I don't think it's one of your principal. Uh, one of the areas that you principally address. Um, but I'm wondering if you, if uh, looking at some of the contributions in the book, if anything stands out to you, because it seems to me that, that many, many writers have addressed this in recent decades. It's so, so, uh, so obvious in terms of psychologists being t- uh, Buddhist teachers and, and vice versa. Uh, so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on on that particular aspect, because that also, it seems to me, has has had profound effects on the secularizing Buddhist movement. Yes, I think that uh, Kathleen Gregory's contribution is particularly relevant here. Mm-hmm. And... Um, The old, the now familiar and, and old term, the therapeutic culture, um, is one that I think is relevant to reflecting on how do we conceive of human beings? 
Um, how do we think about ourselves? And, you know, from my perspective, the therapeutic culture gets integrated with the kind of neoliberal capitalist project by saying, in the form of saying, oh, you have a problem. We will define what that problem is and we will give you the cure. Um, now, this analysis um, follows from work by someone whose name I forget on um, Revelation, the book of Revelation, hmm. in which he pointed out that in the history, what what is going on there is that somebody is def- is saying a is actually saying oh there's a problem and then they're saying this is what it is and you have it and i can fix it and just you know vote for me or buy this tonic or buy this book or take this weekend workshop or commit your life to my religion and your problem, which I have told you, not just what it is, but that you have it, will be solved. Um, so at heart, much of what's going on is kind of a con. People being told that they have problems, and then they're being told, I mean, you can say, well, are you as happy as you really think you want to be? Well, no, of course not. I mean, of course I could be happier, right? Oh, well, if you're not as happy as you think you really ought to be, then you've got a problem and I have the fix for you and so on and so forth. Um, So even the first step of convincing someone that there is something to be fixed is what is at the core of the therapeutic culture and how that has been integrated as a psychological issue having to do with one's emotional state and well-being, you know, or... Um, sense of well-being, yeah, which is not what, which is not actually well-being. But, um, you know, so, so that is where I think a lot of the um, way in which Buddhism is being appropriated into the society um, is being um, formed by these preconceptions about therapeutic culture, and particularly in terms of the way in which the self-help culture uh, operates in the United States, Um, a highly profitable um, undertaking um, that operates on that basis. It operates on the basis of saying, I know you're not as happy or, you know, slim or beautiful or whatever it is and you can help yourself with what i can sell you so i just just as an aside though uh is it would you say that buddhism in the framing of the four noble truths or you know the four noble tasks if you prefer that kind of language lends itself much more naturally to being co-opted in that way because there is a, an assertion that life is suffering and that there's a cessation of that available if one follows this path. So I guess I'm trying to understand how do you, how is that distinguished from what you're describing as the therapeutic model in the, the modern uh, Western world? 
Yes, the the structure of the Four Noble Truths is a medical one. Um, And it's been pretty, I I think, fairly convincingly shown that it was borrowed by the Buddha as an analytic technique uh, from an existing medical tradition. Mm. Um, And yes, it does have that same structure. Um, The question then, I think, is, how is that appropriated into a commercial context? Um, and how is that used? Um, Each fold of the eightfold path costs a little bit more <laughs> until you get to number eight. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been kind of, uh, speaking ironically, I thought maybe I should start a website in which I will sell people certificates so that they are stream enterers. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, for four times that they can get a certificate that says they're once returners. Um, <laughs> now you're talking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that it's useful to distinguish between the way in which a an analytic scheme, such as that of the Four Noble Truths, um, can be used uh, for the benefit of the person in looking at their own lives. I mean, this actually, for most the, <clears throat> for most people, um, it seems to me that the first noble truth is a really hard sell. I have sat in you know weekend workshops um, where people objected most strenuously to, to being told that they're you know that you have to. You have to believe in suffering um, to be a Buddhist. Um, and that in part is, I think, one of the distinctions is that it's not something that Buddhism feels in, or, the, or that most Buddhists that I know um, feel it's necessary to convince someone of, but rather as a kind of descriptive way of thinking about their lives, you know, does this is this true for you? Um, it's not something that they have to be convinced of. It's not something that they have to believe. Uh, if it matches their experience, then yes, there's something that can be done. Well, it seems to me you can frame it as a, an invitation to exa- to examine the question, mm-hmm. um, and that's a um, that's not as as you say, not necessarily a matter of belief whatsoever but but i wonder if the focus of western psychology on the on individual happiness um, inherently creates the distinction between um, unhappiness and happiness and people are then judging themselves along that along that spectrum, it's not quite the same as the invitation to consider if, if existence, if, the, if, our, if our existence in the world has dimensions of suffering. Yes. Do, do you so. see the distinction I'm making? I think so, yeah. The, um... Inviting someone to reflect on the nature of their 
experience in the world is different from telling them that they're some located somewhere in a range of happiness and unhappiness. Right, right. Um, and of course, famously, you know, Freud said that being normally unhappy was the goal. Um, <laughs> something against which lots of people in the 60s with the humanistic movement and transpersonal movements within psychology rejected resoundingly, you know, looking for something better than being, you know, normally unhappy. Um, but you, you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the Kathleen Gregory's essay about looking at the psychologicalization of Buddhism and contrasting that with her own work as a Buddhist teacher mm-hmm. was interesting in that one of the things that she calls out to this point is that the downside of the psychologicalization or the therapeutic model is inherent in the Western therapeutic model as I read her and as I interpret the therapeutic model, there is a reification of a self that's actually taking the advice or doing the fixing and ultimately is an autonomous self that is responsible for their personal salvation in the psychological sense. And that reification of that self leads to its own kind of uh, mild psychosis if one is engaged in mindfulness from the point of view of what I call self-analysis as opposed to um, what we call in the fourth way tradition, self-observation. So if I'm analyzing myself, I'm engaged in a cognitive process that's constantly reifying a self and qualifying that reified self. And that's that's just uh, from a Buddhist perspective, I would say that's a path towards just more suffering than less suffering. So when you talked about, you know, I guess when we talk about the psychologicalization of Buddhism, it seems like it's changing one of the fundamental tenets of the uh, porosity or the non-essential nature of the self and turning it on its head is that do you agree with that or yes um in another essay i refer to it as the western society following on like the protestants uh in america there's the a sense of a moral duty for the self to improve itself um and that bifurcates a person into two parts there and, and this is theorized in some cases. There's the uh, what I believe one calls the I and the me, um, and the I is in charge of making the me better in the world. Um, so yeah, there's a bifurcation that reifies both the agency and the object as myself, um, and you know then you get into the difficulties of um, self-representation and the controlling of the self by the self. Um, That's one of the strong connections, I think, between, for example, um, Kathleen Gregory's contribution and David McMahon's contribution. His analysis, David's analysis, is that mindfulness can be employed in two different ways. Um, One that contributes to um, effectively, I don't 
think that he uses this terminology, but to further neuroses mm. um, and to the kind of making oneself a better person or a better whatever, a better worker, a better soldier, a better um, husband or wife through being mindful. Um, that that's one form of mindfulness. And yet, as you pointed out, there's a different view of the self, which is that it's not a uh, singular agent who's in charge of presenting itself to the world in a particular form, uh, and that somehow mindfulness is a, a better tool for better presenting oneself, but rather that it is a way of recognizing the very... Um, complexity and lack of um, coherence of the self. Um, and those are, again, pretty scary and difficult concepts for people to, uh, to address um, and often meet with pretty strong rejection. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and uh, um, I'll, I'll steal uh, Stuart's uh, word porosity here. Um, that he used a moment ago, um, and it seems to me that that if we invite people to consider that the self um, is not self-contained, as it were, mm-hmm. um, and in in very important ways that it is that we construct that that we construct ourselves and are constructed by our relationships with others, other human beings, and the world. Um, I mean, that's, that's another form of invitation, as we were speaking about a moment ago. And that, um, um, and I think it's fair to say that some of the formulations I've seen of, of mindfulness don't center that invitation, that direction. Is that, would you, would you uh, uh, go along with that, with that observation? Um, I think, yes, I think that that's true. The, um, although, um, some people consider Ron Purser's, um, discussion of mindfulness to be, um, extreme. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have had, you know, in response to some of my own informal writings, have people say, well, mindfulness works. You know, we have all the scientific evidence that shows it. Uh, right, right. Um, and it's good for people. And so, you know, how can you criticize? <clears throat> um, and yet. I think that there is. Um, the possibility that it actually makes things worse. Um, I'm reminded of the term Zen sickness. Um, mm. And I'm actually embarrassed that I'm just reminded of it because I cannot authoritatively say what it is exactly. Um, but it seems to me that there is something relevant there in the way in which the tradition itself has identified um, that there are problems with um undertaking this as a project. You know, there's I, one of the aspects of the secular discourse is to say, you know, meditation is good for everybody. Meditation is ought to be available to everyone. It shouldn't be the 
um, owned by elite monks. Uh, it ought to be available to lay people everywhere. Um, and there is a general lack of recognition of the power of these practices and the potential danger that um, that they hold when they're not taken in undertaken in the context of a community that is supportive and provides some uh, feedback for how one is doing. Um, and whether or not everyone will benefit is, I think, an open question. Well, I think I can um, endorse that because I've, I've seen people undertake uh, meditation projects and um, grow in um, dissatisfaction and until they had to put that project down. And um, so it's not, I, I agree that it, it doesn't seem to be, seems to me it's not for everyone. Yeah. And I, I want to, you, you mentioned Ron Purser's essay, uh, just for listeners who want to highlight or mark that, 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 that essay is about, how mindfulness is being co-opted by the neoliberal corporate machine effectively to, uh, how would you put it? I Serve guess it ends. Yeah. Well, yeah, essentially if I'm suffering, if I'm, if I'm a cog in a corporate wheel and I'm suffering, mindfulness can relieve my suffering. And if I relieve my suffering, then I can be a more effective cog in that machine. And, uh, you know, I guess from a, neoliberal corporate point of view, it's win-win. And, and I think that his, uh, his argument is that in fact, it's lose-lose because then the machine is never questioned and the systemic issues that face people are never addressed because that mindfulness is being used as a, as it were a finger to point to a certain kind of moon, uh, all the while, uh, not looking at its own, uh, unexamined uh, assumptions. And again, it, it puts responsibility for um, happiness back in the individual and obscures the role of the system. Yeah. And that, that's a, we've had this conversation in different forms on this show uh, when we talk about mindfulness because, and I've certainly had conversations with mindfulness consultants who are, you know, deep Buddhist practitioners who make a living selling it into the corporate world. And their claim will be that the power of the teachings in and of themselves is sufficient to show the way for people who uh, reach a certain level of practice. And I, I'm not sure I buy that entirely because I think in a way to even have insight into the uh, process nature of self can lead to an arising of compassion and a, an ethical structure that uh, would necessitate, necessitate certain kinds of actions, or it can lead to this sort of isolated sense that it's my problem, I've addressed it, now I can get back to work. Yeah, I don't see any signs that um, the corporate monoliths are um, in danger of collapsing under the impetus of meditators um, <laughs> in, in their employ. 
Um, I actually am somewhat interested. I've not been following it closely, but I think the issues at Facebook um, are indicative of the difficulties involved. I know nothing about the personal practice of the um, people within Facebook who have been critical um, or the people who have come out of Facebook who are critical. Um, but certainly the ability of an institution like that to uh, continue to operate and over, in a sense, overrule um, the reservations that individuals within that uh, corporation have um, is pretty awesome. Um, now, it's possible that Facebook will change. It's possible that, um, you know, I suppose it's possible it might even collapse. Um, but certainly, you know, the enduring power of the uh, corporate system doesn't seem to be, um, you know, little hammer blows of people at the inside the system who are meditating and saying, oh, you know, I have a, a better sense of myself and um, I can contribute uh, positively, but the system goes on. Um, and one of the things that, one of the aspects of society that I think often gets overlooked is the power of um, the legal system. Um, this is one of the ways in which immigrant groups of Buddhists have forced to change uh, in the context of, of operating in the United States. Um, if you are going to operate, you have to have certain institutional forms. And if you incorporate as a nonprofit religious institution, you have to have a board of governors and you have to have votes and you have to have meetings. All of this is, you know, mandated by the legal status. Um, so these are ways in which, you know, largely out of the attention of many uh, people looking at, you know, secularizing Buddhism, um, the very legal system and the ways in which institutions are uh, defined in the United States um, contributes to transformations, continues, contributes to changes, um, and then eventually in some cases to conflicts within communities because uh, the power is no longer solely located, for example, in the uh, religious figure, but now there is conflict over you know, who owns the building? Well, legally, it may be this uh, corporation that has a board of governors made of lay people who owns the building. And the religious head can't do what he wants. Yeah, the, um, I mean, this, the, the, the example that, the earliest example I'm aware of that where that leads to mind is the San Francisco Zen Center, of course many decades ago, but um, the um, you mentioned earlier, and it is it is mentioned in the book uh, fairly prominently, the, the effect of Protestant thought and practice in the in in the uh, in the West. Um, it seems to me that this this example of the legal structure of a nonprofit in the United States is is one fruit of 
the Protestant um, Reformation and its and its consequences. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, and and that it has been almost uniformly unquestioned as a way. As, as I think is implicit in your your response a moment ago, it's it, you know no very few people seem to question whether that's a good way to go, mm-hmm. and uh, and it, it's um, because oh who wouldn't want to not have to pay taxes, <laughs> right? I mean I think that's the that's that's the basis of it, but it's also implicit in 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 how the West formulates how religious organizations um, act and should be treated. Mm-hmm. And in recent decades, the, the inclination of, uh, you know, some uh, many political groups in the United States to insulate religion even more thoroughly than before from from any responsibility to the to general society, right. and I think that's a I, you know I, I uh, I'm glad you brought this up because I hadn't really thought about it particularly before, but perhaps this is an invitation then for you to talk about this this aspect of the effects of Protestant ideology, if you will, ramified um, onto Buddhism. As it as it has entered the West, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, although it is admittedly a, a very simplified picture of the um, Protestant tradition, there are, I believe, certain values, certain uh, preconceptions that um, permeate popular religious culture. Um, that are rooted in that in that history mm-hmm. um, that includes the um, for one thing the way in which history is written um, <clears throat> excuse me um, uh, what I've referred to as the the rhetoric of decadence mm-hmm. um, which is the um, representation of Religion is having an or a, a pure origin with a founder who had a usually a message of moral reformation, um, individual uh, moral self perfection of some kind, um, and that over time that message gets. Um, Entrapped in cultural preconceptions and cultural ideas, um, and subject to um, being employed uh, by greedy priests um, uh, in the performance of empty ceremonies. Um, so there's the a number of interlocking concepts that are rooted in that way of thinking about history. Um, the idea of being overdetermined is is important here, I think, as well, because in fact there are those kinds of narratives in history uh, of history in Buddhism as well, uh, mm-hmm. notions of 
decay over time and a need to return to the original. Um, but what's important I, for me is that that is a way of conceiving of history, of writing history. It is an historiography. Um, and if you accept that that is the kind of natural way in which uh, religions progress over time, then, for example, you look at the history of Japan and you can project, you know, this is now a very outdated view, but you can project the Reformation onto the Kamakura period and say, okay, so, oh, here we have Nichiren, Shinran, Honen, Dogen, they are the equivalent of Luther and so on. You know, they are the, and they were objecting to the same kinds of things because of the presumption that this is somehow automatically the natural historical progress right, of this kind of decay over time. Um, so it's overdetermined because there, there are instances, but then it gets adopted uncritically as somehow natural. And I think that we see that, for example, with the uh, some of the secular Buddhists who claim exactly this kind of view of history, that Buddhism has become decayed over time. It's subject to these corrupting institutions. Uh, it has authoritarian figures who need to be overthrown. Uh, it's dependent upon... Um, false rituals that are ineffective um, and we can recover we today can figure out what the pure and original teachings of Shakyamuni are and then we get to claim that authority we get to say our teaching is just simply that of Shakyamuni Buddha himself see I have uncovered it. I know what it is. Oh, and by the way, 2,500 years of history can now be discarded and ignored. And the authority of living traditions can be dismissed. Because all of that is corruption. All of that is a corrupted version of Buddhism. I know what the, what the truth is. I have the original Dharma of Shakyamuni. And that gives me the authority to reject all of that other part of the tradition and to discount it. Yeah, I, I really appreciated uh, Philippe Turenne's uh, piece in the book, which is, um, I, I thought, a, a, a remarkably uh, generous mm -hmm. um, uh, consideration of Stephen Batchelor mm -hmm. um, and his work. Um, the other thing that comes to mind uh, uh, from the book is, I have to admit, um, I, I was not exactly happy with Gil Fransdahl's insistence on the term naturalistic, which um, just to, you know, just from my own intellectual history to in our, in, uh, anthropological archaeology to to insist that something is natural is a claim that is usually um, made without sufficient self-examination of what that 
or examination of what that means or what you mean by using the term in that way. But, um, um, but, but to, to speak on behalf of Stephen Batchelor just for a moment, we had him on the show once and at the end, and, you know, I think we, we definitely had some questions for him. Um, and at the end, I remember, um, things were distilled for me when he said something along the lines of, well, this works for people. Why, why, why is he doing what he's doing? This works for people. This, this would not, those people would not be able to have any relationship with, with the Buddha Dharma if I weren't doing what I'm doing, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought that was an interesting, interesting claim, interesting bottom line. And in, in some ways, I don't have any, any problem with it. In other ways, um, I'm not sure that it, that it promotes the kind of self-examination that we are, or examination um, of fundamentals that, that you've been stressing. And it's, but it also seems not unlike what we were just talking about with mindfulness in a corporation. Yeah. It works for people. But then there's an right. examination of that's the right. state of affairs that people find themselves in now, and that's that no longer is a a subject of inquiry, right? I think that that pragmatic claim um, carries its own weight, and then stops inquiry. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh well, it works. So you know, what do you want? Right. What do you expect? I mean, it works. Um, it may be that um, I'm reading more into Gill's essay than um, other people, but I think that he does have a pretty clear sense of uh, what he means by naturalistic. Um, mm-hmm. And basically, it's not supernatural. Right. But that's sure. that's the distinction he seems to be making in my reading of it. Yeah, and and that that leads me to question. I mean, this isn't a topic. Materialism is not a topic explicitly um, focused on in 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 uh, your book, but and with uh, good reason. <laughs> oh well, please do expand on that. <laughs> please go ahead with your your question then. Uh, well, uh, 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 that's the that that's why I had a problem with with his term naturalistic. I'm not saying that 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 Franz Dahl is. I mean, we've also had had him in the program, and you know, I had no. Um, I, I I enjoyed the conversation, shall we say, mm-hmm. and thought it was thought it was useful and appreciated it. And yet, um, I just have a, an intense, I guess, reaction to claims for what is natural. Um, that it seems to me um, obscure things in the way that you were describing earlier in our conversation. So, so, but, but anyway, I, please, please do uh, elaborate on this. Uh, um, the response material, to, materi- the to material the materiality. Yeah. 
Um, I, I think that it is um, one of those um, things that is given a lot more power than um, in, in terms of the discourse um, than it ought to have. Um, I mean, I was with friends last night and one of the people, one of her, her favorite um, questions is um, predeterminism and free will. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it's, it's, the question is, why is that question important? Um, there are ways in which the Buddhist tradition, there are aspects of the Buddhist tradition, which are markedly, markedly and remarkably um, materialistic. If you think of materialism, not in the sense of, so the, the term has two meanings, of course, one of which is the um, explanatory one rooted in the sciences. And the other one is the value judgment. Uh, the people who are greedy want material goods. Um, and oftentimes it seems to me those two uses get conflated and science is rejected because it somehow magically makes people want more material goods and that's bad. So um, that kind of conflation of the use of the term uh, is unhelpful. But if we look at, for example, the Abhidharma, um, all of those dharmas are existing things. And everything, there are only dharmas. One of them is rupa, which is color and form. Um, So there is a very, within the tradition itself, there's a very reductionistic uh, analysis that could be described as a kind of materialism. That it does not have a place for immaterial entities of any kind. That is things which in its own frame of analysis would not be dharmas. So this is one of the difficulties when we begin to try to use um, categories and systems of thought from our own cultural background in looking at Buddhism. It's all too easy, I think, and, and I know that I have done it myself many, many times to take a concept out of a system and say, oh, let's, let's look at that. Let's, let's consider this idea. Um, and one of the things that I am increasingly insisting with some of my students is that they cannot do analysis based upon particular concepts from Buddhism. But they have to look at how does that concept interact with other concepts? What form of a system does it have? How does it play out in a specific text? To even get more specific than some kind of uh, school of Buddhism, which is very malleable when you get into it. But rather, how does this idea play out in a particular text that is valued in that school? So a system of ideas has a very different kind of 
interrelationship between them and, and the meaning of those terms exist within that system. And so when we become concerned about materialism, are we talking about rupa? Are we talking about dharmas? You know, what exactly out of the Buddhist tradition are we saying? It, and is there an alternative within the Buddhist tradition? Right. So I think we need to, to take those as parts of systems of thought rather than as isolated concepts uh, and work with, work with those because it's very easily then to presume that we none understand what is meant. Um, you know, rupa is not matter. Okay. Um, it's form and um, form and matter. It's, you know, it's a much more complex and nuanced idea yeah. than simply the scientific meaning of material existence. And of course, it's often repeated now that matter doesn't exist in terms of physics. Right? That when we penetrate through you know, to atomic, subatomic, and so on. There is no ending point. There's no final analysis of what is matter. Um, so it continues to disappear in that direction as well. Um, I don't know that I've addressed uh, what you wanted well, to. Well, you, you framed it. Well, did you? Yeah, well, well I, 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 have, I have a response, but no, you, you, go you go ahead. Well, <laughs> we both, it's a charged topic for us. Yes. Uh, well, so, so when I talk about materialism, I'm talking about a, I mean, at least a, a third, at least a third meaning uh, of the term, which is that only that which I can see physically um, through through whatever sense you, you care to use, and and I can't remember who in which essay it came up that um, that includes scientific you know, um, instruments and yeah. modalities, right? But what about those things that we can't see through those senses, instruments, and modalities, and um, it seems to me that, that, you know, Jackson's piece about, you know, in, inquiring about the um, rebirth, we can't see that, apparently, um, by, any, by any means that I know. And, um, um, and it's hard for, even though the Western tradition has... A, you know, historically, 2000 years ago, whatever, the idea of rebirth being um, something that at least some philosophers would speak of. Nevertheless, for contemporary people that, that uh, in the West, that simply is um, supernatural, as you were saying. So, um, so that's, I guess that's why I, I guess I have a um, I, I have to question uh, Franz Dahl's use of naturalistic of that word because it seems to me it comes with the baggage of this sensibility that 
presumably most of his most of his uh, students uh, come to the Buddhist practice that he that he offers. And so I don't know if that makes sense, but um, I'm not clear on what you mean by what kind of baggage. The bag the baggage of thinking that if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. So so Stuart has been a, a and he can uh, cite chapter and verse about uh, phenomena that can be scientifically notated or um, uh, supported um, with regard to um, phenomena that are not visible to our eyes. And, and you can talk about that in a moment, but, um, um, but, this, but most scientists, despite the rigor uh, with which some of this work has been done, um, just dismiss it. And that is, that is a set of ideas that you were talking about before. It's a set of ideas, materialism, that is indeed outside the Buddhist, the traditional Buddhist context of ideas. But I think it gets, I think it gets applied by people. So why don't you describe? Well, yeah, I'll I'll just add to that. I I have a academic background in physics and um, my take on that is very much along the lines that you you described that there's lots of constructions of what's important what's not important materialistically and so we have a kind of scientism that wants to say everything's material consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the material and even today when there is you know a growing acceptance of the irreducibility of consciousness as a category to a functional description even then the attempts to find explanatory power about consciousness tends to be materialistic in the sense that it still has some sort of dependency or codependency with the arising of the material in the physics sense of the term. And uh, there is research that's done by, you know, good faith parapsychologists that use the the rules of physics and the double blind experiments and things like that, that show uh, statistically significant results for some uh, non-localized interaction of intention as psychologically determined on physical systems. And yet that is completely ignored or discarded by the institutions that currently um, hold these Views of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and so you know this. This isn't a new story. I mean, this is just this is how institutions and how group thinking happens. Uh, the problem, I guess, I would go back to with what Rob is saying is that I have with naturalism in the sense that uh, we're describing it or attributing it to Franz Dahl, which may or may not be completely fair, is. If, in fact, there's an aspect of our nature which transcends the material, then I would expect that to have a uh, some level of importance to the project of spiritual transformation. And if I exclude that, even from a point of view of agnosticism, from 
the practicum and even the uh, representation of the ideas, then the teaching has to be incomplete. And maybe I'm projecting on that, but it just, it just feels like uh, uh, maybe I'm defining myself as a traditionalist in some sense, but I, it seems like it's, it's too easy to assume that everything's all there if I uh, decide I'm not going to confront some of the elements of the uh, canon that speak to states of being and states of cognition and states of awareness that transcend the material worldview. Is that fair? I mean, do you see what I'm saying in that? Um, I think so. And I think that it is um, a bit unfair to project a simplistic or a naive yeah. materialism onto Franz Dahl and his use of the term naturalistic. I think that that equation um, is itself a, a distortion of what he's trying to say. Yeah, and I'm not really trying to do that with respect. I'm to just uh, I'm respect. just talking about that word. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I uh, um, I'm t- I'm simply being honest here that that when people start using that kind of terminology, um, I I don't think they they ne- I don't think Franz Dell necessarily sees how how it is received necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I I, I see. I would tend to reserve my uh, uh, ire for more of the likes of a Sam Harris, who is, sure. is for all the good he's done of like popularizing meditation to a community of people that might not have ever uh, even taken it seriously. He is very quick to cleave to what I would call the, the current paradigm of, uh, of uh, scientific materialism even though he's very willing to entertain very different ideas about consciousness. And so I'll set a front style aside. I think, it, I think it's an issue and I think it, it comes up in the context of like, um, let, let me get around it to it. Let me come around to this point a different way because uh, I were, I want to make sure we get into this uh, just briefly with you. Um, the sense I had in, the essays and the characterizations of the secularizing process for Buddhism to me feels like there's a privileging of the mental or the mental uh, relationship to practice. And that's even, you can trace that back to even the birth of Vipassana was a privileging of the mental over embodied practices and the older forms of Theravada practice. Uh, amulet magic and very elaborate systems in which uh, mind was an intention was being implicated into the material strata. And when I look at different forms of spiritual transformation, like I would say, when you were describing the fire ceremony in the Shingon context, uh, you know, that calls to me to uh, more let's say shamanistic type practices and practices that are more immediately experiential and, and really are not about the cognizing or the mental relationship to what's happening, but they activate a different part of ourselves in this case, like an emotional part of ourselves or, or physical. Yeah. Like, and, and likewise rituals in general tend to activate the body and bring the body in relationship to practice. And so when I look at, you know, the secularizing force is saying, oh, those things aren't important. Those things are superstitious. 
uh, what's really important is the mental. It feels like two thirds of the uh, channels of access for full transformation are being excluded from uh, prioritization. And that seems to me problematic uh, and, and leads to the kinds of malaises that uh, some of the authors are describing about the use of mindfulness. So that maybe that's where I'm coming from. I don't even have to get ontological about the nature of spirits and things like that. I can just say that when the heart center and the body center are excluded from priority and practice, then the result of that practice is going to be a distortion and not a harmonization of our totality as an embodied human being. Um. That's a really complex topic. Yeah, I don't, and unfortunately, I don't think we have time to get into it. I, I, I found myself ranting. As you're quite well aware. Of. Um, the, the one thing that I would be myself hesitant about is um, okay, there is. It's very easy to talk about putting things back together, right, to create a whole. Um, but that in itself then tends to reify them as different, hmm. that they're separate, that they have to be put back together. That's fair. Um, you know, in talking about materialism, one of the things that I'm reminded of is in Indian Buddhist philosophy, what it means for something to exist is that it has an effect. Yeah. Um, now, is that materialistic? Not necessarily. Yeah. Not necessarily. Yeah. Well, in one, in one sense, yeah. If we 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 have to put quotes around material, and uh, you know, and and to your point about uh, 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 nama rupa is a uh, is a material construct. If if we understand that's what we're talking about. Um. But it's very helpful to avoid, for example, saying that, oh, ideas don't have a, any existence. Well, they do have an existence. Sure. Social constructs have an existence. They have a very clear effect. Um, so in looking at how um, Buddhism is integrated into contemporary discourse, um, I think that some of the ways in which we automatically think about um, the role of the individual in relationship to society um, and not bifurcating that is an important part of seeing how the economic system works, for example. Yeah. Um, I'm riffing a little bit here on some concerns that um, that I haven't adequately formulated for myself, I'm afraid, at this point. Um, but I know that in considering what it means for something to exist, um, we can't just say that things don't exist when they do have an effect. Um, now, then we get into the question of what kind of effect and how do we evaluate that. 
Um, but I think that, you know, today, certainly most of the people that I know who are practicing Buddhists of one, any strain, um, none of them buy into a simplistic or naive materialism. Um, everybody is far too well informed by a um, psychological perspective, for example, on the one hand, um, and by awareness of one's integration into society on the other. Uh, so that the, the the third term that I think is emerging out of the oppositions established, um, whether between traditional Buddhism and secular Buddhism or uh, between a material worldview and a spiritual worldview um, between, you know, whatever these things, however these terms are lined up. Um, so I think something that we clearly don't understand yet, um, but which will emerge as a way of more sophisticated way of integrating uh, full human existence and relationship with others. Well, we're getting very close to the uh, uh, end, so we... we uh, Unfortunately, we can't continue yeah, we have to give this you the discussion as <laughs> much as I'd love to do. Yeah, but Although I, we can, we can in, in, invite you to come back on the show, and if nothing else, uh, talk about your Shingon um, uh, practice. I think that would be interesting, as well as perhaps... Uh, engaging some of these questions yeah. uh, more. I think also the, the the this whole question of the economic uh, the the nature of the current economic system and its impact on how spiritual practice, Buddhist yeah. practice in particular, shows up uh, is a very interesting one. And actually, we have some friends who might want to join in on that conversation. Yeah. So uh, so anyway. Um, so, so, I, I, so I do book. want to express my yeah. gratitude for this conversation, and um, it's been uh, it's been uh, good to engage with um, what you've had to say, yeah. and I appreciate it. We really People. appreciate the clarity of your thinking about this yes. topic. And, Absolutely. Uh, no, it's, it's it's fair. I mean, the the critical thinking, the unwillingness to let any concept go without looking at it, is uh, very refreshing. So the book is Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition, uh, just published, I think, from Shambhala, right, uh, this year. And yes. uh, we highly recommend it. It's a lot of very interesting material, a lot of thought-provoking it's been, material. It's been, a, it's been a very useful thing for me to yeah. engage with the book. Great. So, so uh, Richard Payne, thank you for joining us on The Mystical Positivist. My thanks to you for inviting me here, and um, I am glad that you're finding the work of, of use, and I hope that other people will as well. Thank, Thank you. you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Richard Payne, editor and contributor to the 2021 Shambhala publication, Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition. This collection of essays explores how secular values impact Buddhism in the modern world, what versions of Buddhism are actually being transmitted to the West, whether it is possible to know if a given interpretation of the Buddha's words is correct, and whether secular Buddhism is purely a Western invention. 
Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a conversation with Steve Taylor, author of Extraordinary Awakenings, When Trauma Leads to Transformation. This book provides a compelling investigation of how intense psychological suffering can lead to a dramatic shift in a new expansive identity. Steve Taylor, Ph.D., is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University, the chair of the Transparent Psychology section of the British Psychological Society, and the author of many best-selling books, including The Calm Center, The Leap, and The Clear Light. He blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. Join us for that next week. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. One, two, three, four.